Well, good morning, everyone. If I haven't said good morning to you already, uh, I would like to open with a story of Robin Hood. I think a lot of you have probably heard the story of Robin Hood, but I'll just give a brief overview in case you haven't or it's been a long time. Back in medieval England, there was a king, and his name was Richard. He was known as Good King Richard. The people loved Richard because he was just and fair. Well, one day, he decided to join the Crusades to free Jerusalem from the Muslims. So he left. In return, he placed his brother, John, as temporary king in his place. Well, soon after Richard left, John decided to make himself permanent king and then raised the taxes to criminal rates. The consequences of this decision are, of course, that the people began to starve. And then comes one man, Robin Hood, who steals from the rich to give to the poor. So Robin Hood took justice into his own hands. He saw the problem and he decided to fix it by stealing from the rich and giving to the poor so that they would have the money to buy the food they needed to survive. The question this story brings up, or it should bring up, is... Did Robin Hood do a good thing or a bad thing? The reason this is brought up is because he did steal from what the rich legally owned. However, the poor were starving because of the rich's decision to cause the poor to suffer. So, your answer to this question of whether Robin Hood did a good thing or a bad thing, and whether King Richard should punish or reward Robin will tell you a lot about what you believe about justice, oppression, and our response to those things. And the question this brings up is, does the Bible have anything to say about this topic of justice and oppression? Well, in the book of James, it does. James is writing his letter to a church that is suffering unjustly. They are suffering because they are Christians. And the purpose of his letter is to show and tell these Christians how they can suffer with joy, not how they can get out of that suffering. Now, at the at the beginning of the last chapter in the book of James, he begins to close up his letter by talking about the rich abusing the poor. How do you think God would want you to respond in a situation like that? where the rich are abusing the poor. Perhaps you already think we're living in a society like that. Well, this is a great sermon for you. Maybe you would respond by taking things into your own hands and seeking your own justice, just like Robin. You'd probably feel strongly enough to do that or much more. In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, you can turn there now, we will see that God wills us to endure injustice with patience and calmness while he handles the wicked rich. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we see God declare to us what our response to personal injustice should be. Be patient, do not grumble, and have integrity because of the imminent coming of God. So please read with me or listen to verses, I read verses 1 through 12 of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. 
Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. For your information, if your version reads Lord of the Sabaoth, that's Greek and Hebrew for Lord of Hosts and is a military term referencing God as the one in charge of his angelic army. Just to clear up any confusion. Now, in verses 1 through 6, we see that James' readers have been suffering at the hands of unjust, rich employers who are destined for the judgment of God. James declares several things against these rich individuals. He first tells them to weep and cry for the miseries that are going to be coming into their lives. James says that their clothes have rotted and their money has rusted. Now, the reason James opens with this command to weep and cry is because it's in light of the fact that these miseries are coming and that their clothes have rotted and their money has rusted. That is to say, in light of the coming miseries, their wealth and abundance will not matter. And you all understand this because you know that no amount of money or standing can buy favor with God. That's what James is getting at. Now, it's unclear whether James is referring to a catastrophic event that occurred in the local area, which then wiped out the wealth of the rich or something else at this point. It is possible that James is looking at these rich as, as though they were presently standing before God's judgment seat. Therefore, even though they are alive and rich at the moment, they might as well be destitute for all the good it will do them when they stand before God. So in a sense, James is trying to make the rich realize how small and powerless they really are. So why is James proclaiming such harsh things against these rich people? Well, apparently, most of the church were poor, go figure, and worked for these rich employers. However, while these poor Christians worked faithfully for the rich, the rich failed to pay them the promised amount. Specifically, these were rich landowners who were growing grain and other goods. They would hire other people to care for and harvest those goods. Then, when the time came to pay them wages for their work, they would turn them away. Now, you can see this in verse 4. 
Notice, however, what this leads to. Judgment is coming upon the rich for their evil. That's what it says in verses 1 through 2. However, what exactly did these rich do to be preparing to receive such judgment? It's more than just keeping back money from those who deserve it. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 again. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So there are three things that the rich did that makes them worthy of this judgment. First, they hoarded their treasure. They failed to pay their workers. And then they lived indulgently off of other people's money. Hoarding treasure. Now, the reason I say hoarding treasure in your, your version may say stored up wealth. But really what it is is hoarding treasure. And it's different from saving money or storing up money. The attitude behind saving money is wisdom. Knowing that putting aside some of the funds God has given you is a good way to use those funds. However, the attitude behind hoarding is greed. You see, based upon the accusations that James makes about how they failed to pay their workers and they were living luxuriously in a life of wanton pleasure, it becomes clear that this storing up of wealth wasn't just for a rainy day. This was storing up wealth out of greed. So it's hoarding. Now, see, hoarders gather things such as money because without it, they feel incomplete. Now, if you're wondering to yourself, am I a hoarder? Let me be clear that hoarding is not being too lazy or being too busy to clean out your full garage. Okay? Hoarding is when you do, when someone comes to you and says, we need to clean this up. And then they start showing you things to throw away and you aren't willing to give any of it up. Or it makes you mad when someone tries to suggest throwing something away. That's hoarding. So, the judgment James proclaims upon these rich show that they are not Christians but unbelievers. The reason James proclaims his judgment upon them as if they were in the audience is not because they're actually there, but because he wants to emphasize the reality of the judgment they are facing. No matter how much wealth they gather, it will not matter when God sees them. Is that it, though? Is James just proclaiming judgment and then moving on? Well, no, because there's an unspoken promise. See, he is proclaiming judgment for those who do not repent. But for those who do repent, there is hope. For the rich who see their evil and want to be saved from it can be. See, that's the unspoken promise of James. While an initial reading of James may make you think that James believes in a gospel of works, that's not actually true. James believes in the true gospel of, of faith in Christ for your only way of salvation. However, remember that he's writing to a church that isn't uh, struggling under the idea of a false gospel. He knows they believe in the true gospel. He knows that he doesn't have to worry about whether or not they're running astray from Christ. What he's worried about is how to suffer with joy based upon the true gospel, which is why he doesn't write about the true gospel because he assumes everybody knows it 
That's one thing I want to make clear. So, if these rich would turn from their wickedness and have faith in Christ, then while they would lose their hoarded treasure, they themselves would be saved. But the irony of this is how the rich, the only way the rich will hear of this gospel is through the very poor people that they are oppressing. Which then pushes it back onto the oppressed people and what they are to do. But we'll get to that in a little bit. What other crimes did these rich do to the poor? Well, as we mentioned earlier, they cheated the poor out of their pay. The Christians James were talking to were mostly farmhands who were normally paid just enough to survive. In some cases, and what we see from this text is that the rich were withholding payment from these Christians. In some cases, they were probably causing these Christians to starve. What is interesting here is that James says that it's the money or the pay itself that is crying out to God for justice. So, You got to understand this, that God is so concerned with justice and fairness that even if these Christians had never cried out to God for justice, God would still be wrathful against the rich because it was the money itself which was crying out to God for justice. These Christians wouldn't have had to say anything and God would have still known. So there is no escaping the lesson for that is there's no escaping god's wrath against injustice and oppression because even the money that belongs to the poor cries out for justice now this has a twofold purpose it's james way of condemning the rich and then it also comforts the poor because it lets them know that they've been doubly heard not only have their cries been heard but god knows because of the money that's been stolen from them now what was the cause of this withholding payment From the accusations that James makes, this withholding payment was a choice. It wasn't forced. So it's not like the rich suddenly lost all of their assets. Rather, they purposely chose not to pay. So you can imagine yourself in that position. You work for two weeks, which is typical for us, and then you come to your employer for your paycheck, and he says to you, well, I don't feel like you earned your pay. So go away. And come back next week and we'll see if you can earn your pay. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that would make a lot of people upset. The question is, how would you react and what is the first thing you would do? For most of us, that paycheck is our lifeline. The only thing keeping us from dying. Essentially, these rich were threatening the life of their workers and putting them to certain death just without holding the execution sword themselves. It's murder, which is what you see in verse 6. So these guys are not just guilty of, of theft. They are guilty of murder now. And you must realize that these workers likely don't have any better options. So it wasn't like they could just quit and find a better employer. They were stuck where they were, which is why the rich felt empowered to do these things and abuse the poor in this way. But it doesn't end there. The rest of verse 5 reveals that the rich were living indulgently. This means they were taking the wealth that should have been their workers and spending it on themselves. It's like uh, it's like the equivalent of rich people we know buying their fifth home or their third yacht, but then not paying their workers what they should be. For the people James is writing to, it's like being a worker and seeing your employer go out 
and buy their 31st horse or own, own another city-sized plot of land or build a new boat. On its own, it's not a bad thing to spend your wealth. By all means, spend your wealth the way you please. However, it becomes a very bad thing when you see them buying all of these outrageous things while you aren't getting paid and going hungry. So in answer to the question of how they and we would react if we were in their situation, most people would say or do things that they would probably later regret, especially if God was standing right next to them. James knows that they would react this way, and so hence he writes the next few verses. Read them with me again, starting in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So, there are three commands for the oppressed. Be patient. Do not grumble and do not swear an oath. First, they are told to be patient. Now, the need for patience may not seem immediately apparent. You might think patience is necessary to avoid any rash forms of sin. However, James switches it up by referring to the imminent coming of God. Essentially, just as James is warning the rich that God is certainly coming and he will judge them, so too does he assure his audience that God is certainly coming and he will give them justice. So then patience is necessary because true and just justice is only given by God and will not come until Christ returns, but that this return is imminent. Now, how does James support this claim? By referring to the life of a farmer. He uses the life of a farmer because the people he is referring to are farmhands. Now, key to this example in verse 7 is how the farmer waits and is patient to receive what he needs to harvest his crops and make a profit. See, it doesn't matter how impatient the farmer is to receive rain because he knows that God is the one who is ultimately in control of when the rains come. The farmer can do nothing to change that. However, the farmer trusts in the natural course of the world, which is controlled by God, to rain on his plants and help him to survive. Just so do this, does the audience and us need to wait and be patient for justice from God. What enables these people to wait under such evil injustice is the knowledge that God is returning imminently. The return is imminent because nothing needs to happen before Christ returns. That is, it could happen at any moment. It's also coming soon. Now, obviously, soon doesn't mean in our lifetime, as it didn't mean in the lifetime of these people here, but it does mean soon on God's calendar. 
These people can be patient under adversity because of the knowledge, the trustworthy knowledge that God will return and that when he does, he will, they will receive justice for what's been done to them. Now, if this answer, this solution to this problem of being treated unfairly and unjustly is not satisfying to you, we need to examine that. Usually when you are treated wrongly, you want justice at that time. You don't want to wait for some unspecified date. At that point, you might as well not ever get justice at all. So, the only way this answer is satisfying is when you have total trust in the promise maker. If you totally trust God, who saved you, then when when he says, be patient because I will fix all when I return, you will be put at ease and you will be calmed by the promise because you totally trust God. Remember that this entire letter is James telling his readers how to suffer with joy. And this particular example is extremely difficult to obey God in. And it makes sense that it comes at the end of the letter because most likely this is the most difficult command in the book of James. You see, however, if followed, it shows how much we trust God. The reason this is the most difficult command in the book of James is because all of the other commands in the book of James, all of the other pointers, all of the other lessons in the book of James were things that you could do in this lifetime to make your suffering easier or to better suffer and glorify God. This one alone tells you to trust in God and wait. There's nothing you can do to make this any better. That's what James is saying. He's saying trust in God and wait even until you die. As in, you may not see justice in your lifetime. That's hard. It's very hard. You may go through 40 years of injustice and then die never seeing an inkling of it, of justice, of what you want. Suffering all your life. And you have to trust that God will return and that he will pay you back for what has been done to you. That takes a lot of faith. Now, a good question to ask yourself is whether you could do this. Now, ultimately, we won't know whether we can do this until we are in the situation. But I'm sure that most of you have experienced some form of injustice, whether small or large, in the past. You can ask yourself, how did you react in that moment? Was it hot-blooded, angry, and sinful? Or was it calm, trusting, and peaceful? Have you matured since then? You see, these are good questions to ask ourselves as we proceed. What next? In verse 9, James tells us to not grumble. To grumble is to complain. It's probably the most common sin, for Americans at least, and usually not confronted very often. When we complain or are dissatisfied with life, we tend to grumble to ourselves or to others. Life isn't going the way we wanted. We don't like our government. Taxes are too high. Inflation's on the rise. We've been eating manna and quail for the last 40 years. Grumble, grumble, grumble. So, instead, be patient and do not complain. Dissatisfaction is a common source of man taking his life into his own hands and then screwing it up. It's like when the Israelites told Samuel that they wanted a king, a man in the flesh, to rule over them. 
they weren't happy with God ruling over them directly from his temple. Well, God gave them what they wanted, an answer to their complaint, and his name was Saul, King Saul. And what did it get them? It got them wars, high taxes, and spiritual decline. And what's funny is that God even warned them of these consequences before he provided Saul. And still, they rebelled against God and chose Saul over God. See, just so do people fight God's will for their lives when they complain. Why does James tell us to not complain and grumble against each other? Because by doing so, we fall into judgment. As as James says, Be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, as in God, the judge stands ready to open the gates and begin his return. It's almost here and the church and us need to be ready to receive him. If we go around grumbling at each other, we make it apparent that we think that this life is all there is. And that the suffering will never end. But does James end there? No, he continues and he supports his command. Notice in verses 10 to 11 that James brings up the Old Testament prophets and Job. Now, evidently, the church James was speaking to had the Old Testament and they knew it well. If you've heard any of the life stories of the prophets, you know that their lives were hardly ever pleasant. Isaiah was rejected and abused for his entire ministry. Jeremiah had to watch as the people he continually warned of coming judgment and invasion finally succumbed to God's chosen judgment, which is an invasion, and then he watched as Jerusalem, the holy city, was razed to the ground. Every captivity that Israel went through was preceded by a prophet warning the people of the invading army. And every time, these prophets were ignored, beaten, or scoffed. And yet the church James is speaking to might yet well say, well, God told these prophets of the consequences of prophesying in his name. So that's on them, and it has nothing to do with me. So in response, James brings up Job. No one can argue Job away. Job had a wife, many kids, tons of wealth, and tons of land. Life on earth was as good as it was going to get. And better yet, Job himself was a faithful, honest, and godly man. But as you all know, not only was his land taken, his wealth stolen, and perhaps worst of all, his kids killed, then his wife begins to scoff him while he suffers disease and hunger. Job is the representative in the Bible for unjust suffering. He did not strictly deserve what he was given. As God points out out in his life, Job was was faithful, godly, and pleasing to him. God even says to Satan that there is no reason to make Job suffer. Now, as Christians, we are counted righteous before God because of Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, we are all counted as Job's, so to speak. When we suffer unjust attacks from evil men, we are still like Job. However, it's at this point that we often differ. When Job began to suffer, his response was patience, calmness, and worship for God. 
who he knew was in control of the situation. For us, and for the church James is speaking to, we are not like Job most often. We respond to injustice with anger, rashness, grumbling, and oath-taking. Not like Job. Now, the next command is to not swear. Now, when James is speaking of swearing here, he's not talking about using bad language to exclaim your anger. That's not it. He's talking about making promises and oaths, binding yourself to do something against all else. More than likely, James is telling these oppressed poor people to keep from swearing an oath to get revenge on the rich and to remind them not to be unjust like the rich. That is, when the oppressed make a promise, they need to keep it, even if their rich employers don't. Now, it's very tempting to make a malicious promise to hurt someone when they have done something wrong to you. Yet it is at that time, most of all, that most people don't want to be taken seriously, especially when they've had some time to think about it. Yet God takes every promise and oath we make seriously, even to hold it against us as sin. So James seeks to protect his audience and us by warning us not to make a poorly conceived oath. Now, however, James doesn't just stop with don't make any oaths. He goes further and says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. As in, have integrity even when others don't. Ultimately, this is about justice. Remember that James is writing this letter to tell his readers how they can have joy in the midst of suffering. Here, James answers the question of whether you can have joy in oppression and injustice. This is about when an employer treats you unfairly or gives more privileges to another worker who has the same station as you. In response to injustice, we are to be patient and guard our tongue from complaints and oaths. Does this also mean that we passively accept whatever life throws at us? No, it does not. Remember that for the people James was writing to, there was nowhere for them to go, no one for, their, their, for them to talk to, to be represented in front of these employers and to get justice. They had to deal with it. For us, in many of our jobs, we have been offered a way to voice our grievances without doing something illegal and without sinning. What James tells us here doesn't mean we are not allowed to go through lawful means to stop injustice. However, even as we go through that process, we must obey what God is telling us here. Be patient, don't grumble, and don't make any promises. We are not to respond to injustice with more injustice. James here is talking to those of us who are likely to lash out when injustice is done. While we are to use whatever rights have been given to us in order to have our employers be just, we are not to take revenge into our own hands. Don't swear an oath to do something evil in return for the evil someone has done to you. Instead, let your words be promises by always doing what you say you will do. When you are treated unfairly, what is your first response? For most people, the first response is righteous anger. This is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Righteous anger is good. However, it's very easy for righteous anger to turn into sinful anger when thoughts about injustice turn into thoughts of ourselves. 
While there are some who will then act upon this sinful anger and behave sinfully, there are many who will eventually choose to turn the other cheek and do nothing about it except hold a grudge, fail to forgive, and begin to treat the one who did the wrong differently. This is just as wicked. We must use biblical confrontation whenever possible to resolve these issues before they fester. But the situation James is talking about here is different because there is no opportunity to use biblical confrontation. And even when there is, the employers don't listen. So then we ought to take whatever avenues are available to us to ensure we receive justice so long as we don't sin or do something illegal. We shouldn't just roll over and take it when we are being treated unfairly. I think there are a lot of Christians who are more willing to not shake the boat than to stand up for what's right and having their employers or their superiors do the right thing. For an applicable example, I think this one's easy, we could talk about politics. If you ever watch the news, even for a little bit, you will see over and over again our leaders committing vast injustices against people who can't defend themselves. Now, how ought we to respond? Well, our first response should be righteous anger. It's good to feel angry when an injustice is done. However, we ought to act in a legal manner to stop this injustice from continuing. For us as Americans, that means voting. However, this would also mean that we must avoid falling into the sins that James lines here. We must remain patient, knowing that God will puts our leaders in their place for a reason. We must not grumble, knowing that God will soon judge all men, even our wicked rulers. And we must not swear an oath, for we have no power to do anything and ought to obey God while we do what we can. Now, let's go back to that Robin Hood example from the beginning. Should King Richard, when he returns from the Middle East, punish Robin for stealing from the rich, even though he gave what he stole to the poor? Well, Two wrongs don't make a right, which means what Robin did was wicked and wrong, even though he did it with good intentions. So King Richard should punish Robin just as he punishes John. But that then begs the question, what about the people? What were they supposed to do if Robin wasn't going to do this for them? According to James, they were to use whatever legal means available to stop King John. Included in this would be prayer and supplication to God for deliverance and patience, knowing that God would not forget what John had done and would punish him for it. If that doesn't seem right, remember what James says back at the beginning, where he says to trust in the fact that God will return. In conclusion, let's consider the life of Christ. James used Job, I'm going to use Christ. How unfairly was Christ treated? How often did he watch the temple, his father's house, go abused? How often did the king of kings go hungry or without sleep? Remember that, the, remember that James who wrote this knew Jesus personally. See, the disciples so often argued with this man, Jesus Christ, when out of all people, he was the one person in the entire universe never to be questioned, ever to be questioned. His family mistreated him, said that he was just a normal man, didn't think he was really the son of God. And let's not forget when Jesus was put on the cross, though he committed no wrong. Jesus knew unfairness and he knew injustice. His death on the cross was to be justice for us. 
So the next time you are treated with injustice, think of all the times that Jesus was starved, spat on, attacked, betrayed, and executed. And don't worry, if you can't think of one, just read the Gospels, you'll see plenty of them. And through it all, he remained patient, never grumbled, and never swore. Now let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this Sunday morning that you have allowed all of us to gather here together to hear from your word. I pray that whatever was correct from this sermon, according to your word, that it would filter into the hearts of everyone here and it would control their lives as you desire. Watch over us and our hearts as we go about the rest of our day. And thank you for sending your son to suffer injustice for our sake. Amen.